Hey everybody, the Game of Thrones Weekly Podcast is back and a bit early. I'm James Hibbard with Entertainment Weekly, and the final season is still a few months away, but my co-host Darren Franich and I figured we would do a Season 8 preview. Uh, the first of a few preview episodes, actually. We're going to talk about my final set visits to Belfast, uh, get into some of the stories that have been circulating around out there about the new episodes. We're going to talk a bit about the Game of Thrones prequel series, uh, since some news has been made on that in recent months. And Darren recently read all 700 pages of George R. R. Martin's new book, Fire and Blood. So he's going to run down some of the most intriguing nuggets he found in that. Um, well, welcome back, Darren. James, so great to be here. Welcome back to you, really. You've been all over Westeros, possibly even to Essos and the lands beyond, uh, for all I know. Um, you know, James, listeners of this podcast, like me, we've all become connoisseurs of the James Hibbard Game of Thrones cover stories, uh, but your latest Entertainment Weekly cover story was a true wonder, I thought. You went to the set of the final season of Game of Thrones. You were there, wherever it is in the realm of the fictional world of of Westeros. You were there in Belfast. Uh, just so many great nuggets from the story to dig into. But I guess, can we start with like the big battle that everyone's kind of been talking about? Because um, there was a part of your story where you kind of mentioned all these rumors about how, oh, you know, it's this big and they filmed for 55 days. And it turned out actually that was even that was not even close to how long they actually had been filming for. Um, a, lot, a lot of big numbers attached to this season, it seems like, James. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, a lot of big numbers. I mean, they spent uh, 10 months filming six episodes of television, which, you know, uh, what six episodes of television normally take is about two months, not 10. So that's, uh, that's pretty crazy. And a lot of it isn't just uh, the big battle stuff that's taking a long period of time. It's it's just even the regular scenes of like two people talking in a hallway. If it's a scene that would normally take a day to shoot, they'll spend several days shooting it uh, just because they're trying so hard to get every little thing right. Um, so they'll do take after take after take and doing it from all sorts of different angles. So that the, in editing, they have all sorts of different ways to potentially piece it together. Um, but yeah, the battle's kind of the big sexy thing, right? Uh, it's uh, shaping up to be what might be what I think probably almost certainly is uh, the longest consecutive battle sequence in cinema history. Um, they have looked to try and find other ones out there. Like they looked at uh, the two towers uh, in Lord of the Rings, which was about 40 minutes. And they looked at um, the movie 13 Assassins. And that one's also around 40 minutes. And this is going to be longer than 40 minutes. So, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty nuts. And they spent uh, the original rumor was that they shot for 55 days. And where that came from is an assistant director posted something on like Instagram or something saying how they just wrapped 55 uh, consecutive night shoots and uh, for the, this, this battle. And so everyone thought, oh, wow, they spent 55 night shooting the battle and they compared that to battle of the bastards which took about 25 days but that was sort of making an assumption because people were assuming that the battle filming was then over it was only 
the night shoots part that was over. Uh, then the battle shifted to the indoor studios where they kept shooting for weeks after that. So it's it's pretty nuts in terms of how long they're taking to do this. Um, what can you tell us about your set visit? You sort of had just a, a lot of great nuggets about what it was like going to this most top secret of top secret pop culture creations. Um, was it noticeably even more kind of MI6 level intense getting in there this year? Um, and, and I guess also just in general, I mean, what's it been like for you having seen some of this stuff, just kind of carrying the weight of some of the spoiler material you've seen, which you are obviously not going to tell me because uh, much as I want to hear that, I should probably experience it in in TV show form first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the secrecy this season was is uh, was the highest I've ever seen it. There, they had these little ID badges that you scan that were a bit more high tech. Um, they covered your phone with stickers uh, so you couldn't take any uh, photos when you went in. Um, there were no paper scripts ever. They all had to read them on iPads. And, you know, at, at first it was funny. There was this rumor going around all these stories about how the actors weren't receiving scripts at all for the final season. That was one of the first final season rumors. And it was just, no, they, they, they're they not just like, you know, making it up on uh, on on set as they go along uh, or being told. Like, I think the one story even had people being read their lines through earpieces like they're Marlon Brando in the score or something. Um but no, no, they got the scripts. They got them ahead of time, but they're on iPads and they had like two levels of like password security that refresh every 20 minutes. So they kept having to re-log in over and over again. Um, and all the documents uh, that were on set, like documents that said, you know, which actors were supposed to be there, you know, at what times and what scenes, they all had like code names. So... You know, so like I think Amelia uh, uh, Clark was Elvis, you know, for instance. I think um, <laughs> Kit Harrington, I think, was like Patrick or something. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not sure how, how they came up with these names, but but uh, Elvis but and Patrick, a, yeah, <laughs> the exactly. two most important characters on the show. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, so and that created some confusion because people would always be like, wait, who's Patrick again? Who's Eldis again? And when you have like 40 some cast members, you know, it created some uh, a bit of hilarity behind the scenes. Um, they also had one of my favorite pieces of gear. They had what's called like a drone killer. Um, which is like this electronic gun that if any drones try to go over their airspace when they're shooting, they could like aim this like like sonic wave gun or whatever it is at the drone and like knock it out of the sky to prevent it from taking photos. Um, you know, and they got like the local, the government in Belfast to agree to not have, uh, to have their sets have like restricted airspace. So it was like a no flyover zone. Wait, so did they um, have like, are these like, like EMP guns that they had? They could just fire at things and shut them down. Like that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for, for, I, I never heard of them actually using it, but the very fact that they had that ability, I think is pretty cool. I would love to have one of those guns next time I'm at like a concert or something. And someone's like flying their drone over and you can just whip that out and like crash the drone. <laughs> um, but, but but again, James, like I, I'm just kind of interested in this because again, like a big part of your job with covering this show has always sort of been holding on to these secrets. What's it been like this go round? I mean, like it, has it been sort of like harder just as as a reporter, as someone who has seen some of this stuff? Uh, it, it's never been more difficult than this time because. You know, I think one time I used the phrase that's like carrying around like the pop culture nuclear codes in your head. You know, <laughs> um, you almost like don't trust yourself. Um, it's funny. I was recently having an issue that I was super stressed about unrelated to this. 
and went to see a uh, psychologist, a shrink. And I'm not normally like a therapy person, but when I have something I'm trying to work out, you know, I'll like go for a visit or two so I don't annoy my friends by talking their ear off about it. So I'm in there and I'm talking about my job at one point and I mentioned uh, my Game of Thrones work and and I mentioned, you know, hey, you know, you know it's you know, it's kind of stressful actually knowing these final seasons. Sto- spoilers because I'm people are constantly asking me about Game of Thrones and whenever they ask me about Game of Thrones, I think of these things that are about to happen and then I can't talk about it. Whereas if you're an actor on the show, you can talk about it with other actors and crew members can talk about it with each other, but I don't really have anyone else I can talk to about it. And so the the shrink goes, he's like, you know, James, I watch Game of Thrones and this is a protected space. <laughs> And I'm bound by law to keep confidentiality. So if you would like to ease your burden and tell me what happens in the final season, I can help relieve that pressure if it's bothering you. And I'm just like, yeah, nah, that's okay, Doc. I'm going to pass on that. I mean, it's like I'll gladly tell you my most innermost secrets, but I'm not going to tell you what happens to like Samuel Tarly or something. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Oh my God, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, good, good on <laughs> good on your therapist for for like for like wheel dealing there. Like I'm sure he was just like, this is great. Like I'll finally get some 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 top secret intel on the Thrones final season. Oh my yeah. God, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, and 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 to be clear, I wasn't there because of the spoilers. I don't want like Winter is Coming or some other Thrones site like doing a post like <laughs> keeping Game of Thrones final season and spoilers drove reporter insane or something. <laughs> See, I thought you were going to say like James was so depressed by by what he knew. He was he was so horrified by the final fate of I, I don't know Theon that he decided to check into a a, a therapy. Um, well that is really funny James. Uh, what what can we say about the new season? What do we know? Like I feel like there was that uh, two second clip of the new season uh, that we saw in the kind of HBO 2019 preview which I believe was of John uh, hugging Sansa. Um, was there anything else that we can officially say about the new season yet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we know, we also know that John and Danny go to the north. I mean, that was our our um, our cover photo, which is like the only official photo release. It's just basically John and Danny kind of standing there with snow snow around them, showing that they got to the north. It, it, yeah, in, in the story, you know, we we reveal I, it's it's not much of a reveal but you know it's it's something you can kind of have put together that um that uh Daenerys uh arrives at Winterfell in the first episode back and it's kind of a callback to the pilot when uh Robert Baratheon and, and his team uh you know got to Winterfell and instead this time it's uh Daenerys and uh, and her crew uh arriving at Winterfell with with, with Sansa uh, greeting them uh so and that sort of sets a stage for you know building to this climactic battle between uh the good guys and the army of the dead and, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting about just the idea of them all being together at Winterfell is that, I mean, it's weird. In some, sometimes I think Winterfell, on some level, just because it's the first setting, it always feels to me like it's kind of the core of Thrones or the core of A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, like, even as the story goes off in so many directions, and even as we've spent way more time at King's Landing probably over the years. So I, I like that idea of it sort of bookending back to where it all began with, you know, some, some other ruler waltzing in with lots and lots of people. And, you know, some of the same people are there, and most of the people from, the, from season one are dead now. Um, what can you say about, right. uh, am I right in saying like Winterfell is going to look a little different this year or it's going to look a little larger this year? 
Yeah, it's going to look awesome. Uh, they massively expanded the Winterfell set. Um, I mean, before it was already pretty impressive. Um, but I think the metaphor I use is like before, it kind of makes the old Winterfell set look like a La Quinta Inn and the new one's like a, like a sprawling resort. <laughs> I mean, they have this huge um, front section uh, that represents the front of the castle. And uh, you can just kind of wander around in there. And you can point the camera in any direction, and it shows more Winterfell. I was talking to one of the directors, and he was pointing out that um, even on like a big budget movie, like a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie, they usually only build what the actors are going to stand directly in front of and then fill in the rest with green screen. Uh, but for this set, for this show, and for a few other ones too, uh, you know, they build it as like a 360 thing. So you don't have to fill in with special effects. You don't have to favor one particular angle. You can have cameras follow people around. You can do unusual angles and come up with different things on the day of shooting. Um, so it allows you with a lot more creativity. And it really helps the actors because they feel like, like there's no acting re required when they're running around these sets. And uh, and they're fighting, and you know there's like you know, this, you know like fake blood on the snow, and there's like snow flying everywhere, and uh, you know there, there's like torches burning and fires and smoke. It just feels like you're you're right there in it. You mentioned kind of talking to some of the directors involved in this final season. Um, I believe we do know all of the directors who are working on these episodes, right? I mean, like our, our boy um, Miguel Sapochnik is back in a, yes. in a in a big way. Like, I'm not going to say I hope Jon Snow climbs through an even bigger pile of bodies this time, but if that happens, <laughs> that'd be cool. Um, who else is going to be helming uh, this this final run of episodes? Yeah, so there's also David Nutter, who um, famously directed uh, the Reigns of Castamere episode, a.k.a. The Red Wedding. Um, and there's the showrunners, David Benioff and Dan Weiss. They're, they're doing uh, the finale. Uh, so... Yeah. Now, James, uh, another great part of your cover story um, focuses on the kind of epic table read of uh, all of the actors kind of getting together for this final season, um, which seemed pretty remarkable for a number of different reasons. Uh, can you kind of like take us back to that day, like to them sort of going through? Because it was it was sort of like the whole thing at once, right? Like it was all the final season in what I have to imagine was a deeply emotional day for everyone involved. <laughs> yeah, and they haven't really done like a like a formal whole cast table read in in a few years, but they wanted to do it for the final season. I I'm sure that. They they probably filmed it as well for you know to be released on the DVD at some point, um, and yeah, it was really emotional. Uh, they got all the scripts at the same time, just a couple days uh, before the table read, and then they all tore through them. Um, I, Sophie Turner got the credit for reading hers first and replying to the show showrunners first, and the uh, the showrunner the showrunners were saying that it's it's so weird to do it this way because they send it off and then they just wait and they wait and they wait to to see what the reaction are going to be because the actors are so invested in their characters and so they're a bit nervous you know sending these out because they they don't want people to like you know hate it but it's hard to like make everybody happy in such a big cast um yeah and uh you know the one person that uh didn't deliberately read their scripts was kit harrington who went to the the final season um table read literally knowing nothing and it was funny for for the showrunners because they hadn't heard anything from him and so they're thinking oh my god does like kid harrington completely hate what we did with this character in the final season so they walk into the final season uh table read and they say kit you know 
so what'd you think? And he's like, oh yeah, I, I hadn't read it. And so, like, oh, okay. Well, that explains why we haven't heard uh, from one of our major actors. Uh, Good for and yeah, and, and then they read through them all over the course of, of two days and uh, in, in this production uh, a room conference room where they had like skulls on the table like prop skulls on the table you know <laughs> and people would like cheer and applaud when different actors characters would get killed off and uh and in the end uh there were tears there were tears around that table uh, with a uh, kit you know especially sort of noting that he cried twice during the whole process of reading through those scripts. Oh man. Really though, what, what I want to know is what was Joe Dempsey's reaction to all of this? Like guy who plays Gendry, I have to assume it's just like hap happy to be here. He was so shocked that he here. ends up on the iron throne, Darren. <laughs> 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 Kidding. I'm not saying that Gendry ends up on iron throne. Although that, that is one of the, Theories. That's one of the big theories, yeah, which whenever I hear it, James, I mean, like, it's funny, we're now, like, you know, almost a decade deep into Game of Thrones theories, so it, it's almost kind of, like, fun when you come across one that does seem genuinely sort of new and mind-blowing and possible. I, I, I feel like there are some that are kind of mind-blowing and some that are possible, and, and they're not always kind of the same the same way, but I am always kind of, like, I guess I could see the Gendry thing somehow. Like, it, it makes just the right amount of sense that it would be a, like, Robert Baratheon heir, g g yeah. given that all of these problems started because he was a terrible king and like every single family has had a horrific like mass murders, you know, t terror year because of him. It it'd be hilarious, but it's just like, yeah. And also like his son takes over in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and also, you know, he's such a, a likable character, and he's obviously got that that royal uh, royal lineage, and you, they've kept him around. You know, he kind of went away for a little bit and came back, so you know he's got some, you know, key role to play in the final season. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I can definitely see why that's, like, a popular theory. I had always bet big on, on Littlefinger, uh, and you know what? I'm, I'm not backing down from that. He could come back as as <laughs> Littlefinger White zombie uh, and still sit on the Iron Throne at, at, at some point. I'm, I'm, I'm doubling down on that highly unlikely uh, bet for the final act. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and, and uh, Lady Stoneheart will both... Uh, We'll both be on the iron. Uh, well, well, yeah. Now you've said my my like code phrase, and now <laughs> I have been fully activated. Um, James, uh, just in general, as we're here, we're a few months out from the final season. We still don't have a, a precise premiere date for it. We know it's coming out in April. Um, what else are you kind of like excited about as we go into this final season? I, I, either from stuff you've seen or, or just from stuff that you've kind of experienced as someone who's just so completely in the Westeros uh, world right now. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of just amazing, I mean, there's been so much focus on the spectacularness of it and the battles, but they're, you know, they're not skimping on the one-on-one -on -one scenes and the character scenes. I think some, I think people are going to be surprised at how intimate, you know, the final season is, uh, you know, in addition to the spectacular stuff that, that you're, you're expecting. And just in general, I guess I, I would say about it that it's like, what you want in any final season is you want things to be unexpected yet also make sense. So you don't want anything to surprise you for surprise sake. You want everything to feel earned and to look back and go, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I can see how they were building to that. And I think, you know, from what I know, the final season that this does that. 
Uh, it, it is interesting too, just given with a show like this, it seems like especially a crazy tightrope to walk where so much of its history and so much of the kind of DNA that George R. R. Martin created, it, it is that mix of these incredible shocking twists that also seem inevitable when you think back on them. Uh, to me, that's kind of the, you know, yeah. the great thing about the Ned Stark ex- execution. It's the great thing about the Red Wedding that in the moment you're watching it, you're just like, I was not expecting that. And you go back and say, okay, I see how this was kind of in- inevitable how Ned Stark was just not the hero for this moment, how Rob Stark was sort of a, a victim of, you know, totally cruel irony and fate that was always going to maybe claim someone like him in this horrible new world. And I have to imagine it's just, it's so extra tricky when you're telling the final act of that story. And it's like, we we needed to feel both surprising and inevitable at the same time. And I, I mean, I don't know, there are great shows that haven't figured out, you know, the 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 the, the final season thing. So I'm, I'm excited to see what they kind of, you know, see how they weave all these different story strands together. Mainly, though, James, really excited to see them finally nail the Greyjoys this season. I can feel it. I can feel it. This is the year. This is the year. <laughs> one, <laughs> one more one more reboot of a year on Greyjoy will finally get us there, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you're mentioning reading, um, uh, you know, uh, Fire and Blood, how there wasn't as how there's much more seafaring in, in the books uh, than there is ever in the show. Oh my God. I mean, I, like maybe, my theory is it's at least partially that like Martin is, is just getting a lot more interested in the seafaring stuff. I mean, like, and, and maybe it's like partially for him just, you know, he was like a longshoreman's son, like maybe it's kind of in his blood or something like that. But it does seem to me like starting from Feast for Crows, there's a real kind of fascination and a great kind of, you know, enjoyment of the Greyjoy characters who were such like seafaring, you know, Irish, Vikings or whatever their kind of you know odd r- religious background uh, reminds you of in Fire and Blood like the best characters are all like the seafarers who are going on these like long epic Sinbadian adventures all around the world um, I, I have to imagine at least part of that is also him just sort of being like what's the thing that is almost impossible to do in, in movies really but certainly on television I mean right. it is very difficult to do like the, the seafaring big ship sailing the seven seas kind of adventures and even the ones that do it well you're always kind of like oh it's kind of a water tank like you know the digital effects are a little shoddy so yeah I I have to imagine that was at least part of the inclination when he's just creating these characters like I mean Corliss Valerian who's the sea snake who basically is the Sinbad of of Westeros history just going off on all these epic adventures and there's krakens out in the middle of the ocean and stuff Um, so yeah fun, fun stuff that I have to imagine will not factor in too much to Game of Thrones season <laughs> yeah, I, I think they I think there's going to be some sea stuff in in season eight. But um, but yeah, I mean, doing anything on water is always expensive. You know, back in season two, they famously weren't able to really do the battle of the Blackwater, anything approaching the books. Um, they have a lot more money now, but still generally fake the water stuff. Um, when I was on you're on Grey Joy's ship, uh, the silence on the set, you're basically on a boat built in a parking lot um you know and but they make it look really realistic in the show but that that requires a lot of heavy lifting on the special effects and i think the other thing is too in terms of seafaring is seafaring is usually unless you're in the middle of battle it's basically a travel scene right (laughs) and i think they were kind of big on travel scenes in the first 
few seasons and then as you know the storytelling kind of picked up a bit i you know they've kind of skipped over you know you know you know sometimes to a point where where fans get annoyed you know you know when suddenly a character goes from this location to that location i mean yeah well we've we've talked about this before it is just so great that like with game of thrones you have eras where people were annoyed there was too much travel and then like i feel like mm-hmm. last season was the sort of onset of the people are moving too fast now there's too much there's too much quick travel happening between winterfell and uh, dragonstone and everything i i have to imagine that yeah we're probably past the point of the the lengthy trips north and the lengthy trips east and 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 stuff like that which i think i'm okay with (laughs) yeah yeah you you, you know another thing we should talk about too is is the uh and there's not much to talk about yet but um i'm certainly excited about it is the the trailer i mean there's going to be a trailer it's just a matter of when um you know they've uh yeah at one point i was talking to showrunners and they kind of made a comment that I might have been a joke, might have not been a joke, but they were basically like, you know, if it was up to us, we wouldn't even do a trailer, <laughs> you know, just just so everybody goes in completely not having any idea what to expect. Um, but there will be one, and uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, you kind of had done a, a great write-up just recently on the fact that even though there haven't been new episodes of Game of Thrones in, in over a year, I mean, like, n- not at all in, in, in 2018, you have to go back to mid-2017, it still was the most kind of on-demanded show of the year. Am I saying on-demanded correctly? Is that the proper verb <laughs> usage? Um, so, yeah, I have to imagine that, I mean, it is just funny. They could put out a trailer that is, you know, 20 seconds of two characters talking in a room, which, first of all, based on your description, that now sounds like it would be incredibly visually stimulating, given all the uh, work that goes into the two-character conversations. But it also seems like that would be an internet shutdowning experience. I mean, n- not even necessarily any dragons required, although dragons would be welcome, I assume. <laughs> yeah, one thing I'm curious about is how much into the season they show in the trailer, because in the last couple seasons... If I remember right, the trailers were like 80% footage from episode one. Um, you know, you know, again, just to not give that much of a sense of what happens in in the season. Uh, so I I bet it's going to be pretty episode one heavy and a little bit of battle footage, and probably that's it. I mean, that would be that would be my prediction on it, but. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, James, uh, while we're talking about uh, the Game of Thrones final season, um, there is this sort of like slow building story happening in the background of all of this, which is the fact that like this is going to be the end of Game of Thrones. It is certainly not the end of HBO uh, creating original programming set in the world that George R. R. Martin created. Um, you've been sort of following. I-, I think we're now in sort of year two or year three of the development of a Game of Thrones companion series um, which that series we now know a little bit about uh, except not really the title and not really anything about it now that I think about it but maybe some of the actors um, what, what do we know about the Game of Thrones prequel series I, I guess we can call it for now although that kind of implies that it leads into Thrones which I'm not sure it does um, I'm, I'm rambling around the fact that I know nothing James can you uh, enlighten me a little bit <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean I don't know much either I mean I know it it's takes place 5,000 years before uh, the events in Game of Thrones. Uh, we know that Naomi Watts uh, was cast as a socialite with a secret. Um, <laughs> we uh, we know it's almost certainly called The Long Night, uh, though HBO hasn't confirmed that. Um, uh, we know it's currently casting and, and still looking for a director. Um, 
we suspect it's going to shoot in early 2019. I think they originally said February, but I don't think they're going to be shooting by then. Um, it's not greenlit to series, so they still have to shoot a pilot and see how that goes. Um, in my interview with George R. R. Martin, he, he talked about it being kind of a pre-Targaryen and, and pre-Dragon story um, you know, during the Age of Heroes. So, you know, that's pretty interesting. That That's not going to have, definitely not going to have any Targaryens and might not have any, any dragons either. Uh, some of the other prequels HBO uh, were developing uh, were more dragon focused, but but that wasn't the, the one they chose. Which I just find so interesting. And I guess, I mean, you know, again, now that I've read Fire and Blood and now that I'm sort of like just buried in like the history of Westeros, Fire and Blood is extremely dragon heavy. You know, it's the story of the kind of Targaryens in Westeros, which I I think a lot of people just kind of naturally assumed that would be a potential prequel focus. I mean, Martin has written a lot about that even before kind of publishing it all together in this book. Um, But I mean, like Fire and Blood starts like 300 years or roughly before Game of Thrones, 5,000 years is a very, very long time, you know, long lead up to, to a prequel series. And I mean, really, one thing that I'm just fascinated by is just kind of knowing what the look of this show is going to be. I mean, like 5,000 years. Yeah, me too. I mean, like, if we kind of accept that Game of Thrones is kind of set in a medieval version of a fantasy universe, you know, you're kind of like, okay, well, 5,000 years before Earth's medieval time, things looked very different. You know, castles are very different clothes are very different you know we're talking essentially almost pre-recorded civilization does that kind of factor right. in here you know if if we're saying that there's socialites i'm kind of like okay so we're, we're in an area era where there is some kind of like you know set up civilization um and you know even just the the instinct of going so much earlier of doing something where you know this is not even like the caprica thing of like here is the you know, ancestor of a character we know. I mean, it seems like if it is, it's going to be a deep, deep, deep ancestor. It's not like Ned Stark's father or anything like that, which I also find really interesting. I mean, James, I think there used to be more skepticism around spinoffs and prequels. Like, you know, even like 10 or 11 years ago, if you sort of reached the end of a successful TV series and they were like, we're spinning it off, I think there would have been like the assumption that it was not going to be that great. We certainly are in a kind of post-Better Call Saul era now. So I, I think yes. I, I think people are maybe a little more willing to, to see where this goes. Um, but it, it does seem like it's a pretty daunting prospect, right? I mean, Thrones isn't just a success. In some metrics, it's the definition of success this decade. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I do think HBO approached it in a really smart way. They know Thrones is lightning in a bottle. You know, they know if they just developed one new project, the odds are so against it working. So they developed five, which I've never seen before. You know, let's do five scripts from five acclaimed writers in the same universe and then just pick the best one. Um, yeah, I do think that that move kind of maximizes uh, the chance for success. Uh, that, you know, as you said, that takes place so long ago is interesting. Uh, you know, one of the things that I personally don't like about prequels, and we see this especially in like the Star Wars prequel movies, is this feeling that it's explaining all these things that we don't need explanations for. Yeah. I, I don't care how Han Solo got his name or where he got his <laughs> blaster. You know, I just want to see Han Solo doing cool Han Solo shit. You know, and a lot of fans wanted a prequel that would be Robert's Rebellion and Martin had a really smart reply to that. And he was like, you know, we already know that story. That's too close to Thrones. You're never going to be able to generate that much suspense in a story 
in that story because you already know the major things that happen. But by going by 5,000 years, you know, we don't know anything. You know, Martin, you know, mentioned that uh, he's only written a few paragraphs about this period. So you're really free to do anything. The problem is, you know, Thrones had all these great books with so many great characters and detail and story arcs to lean on, you know, to, and so, you know, the showrunners were able to take that and make it into the most cinematic version possible. Whereas the prequel has to start from scratch and ha and it takes place so long ago. So it, it could feel so different that people might feel like, hey, this isn't really even Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. You know, but I do think that's a better risk to, to take than feeling like, oh, this is like things we already know, and this is just a retread and playing it too safe. Yeah, I mean, I I, I sort of like what you were saying about just when you're setting it so much earlier in this time that's meant to be mysterious. There is that kind of quality to it of okay, well, we're not watching someone who we know is going to be Darth Vader slowly become Darth Vader and have lots of bad haircuts. Like we are literally seeing a time <laughs> period that we know very little about, and everything can kind of be very surprising. It seems as if you know. I know that they've even kind of said that like elements of this time period of the age of heroes of the long night, there are things that like within the world of Westeros in the books of, of a song of ice and fire and in Thrones, we've kind of heard, but like that could all be second or third hand and that could all be wrong. And like, maybe even like the canon that is, you know, covered in depth on a wiki of ice and fire that could be sort of thrown aside. That does seem interesting to me. I mean, like th there is that kind of natural instinct to just be like, uh, like, you know, prequels, I'm, I'm not sure. Is this just going to be kind of covering ground we already know? Is it going to be doing the weird thing where, like, things look weirdly more advanced, even though it's set in an earlier time right. period? Um, but we'll see. I mean, I guess, like, I mean, uh, them hiring Naomi Watts as a main person, I think, gave me a little bit of you know just hope as far as like okay like that's a performer who i enjoy and like she seems like someone who can really lock into you know whether it's a sort of epic melodrama or the sort of great political sniping which are things that thrones does really well she seems really adept at doing either of those things so we'll see i mean i'm i, I the more i hear about it the more intrigued i am which is probably a good thing <laughs> yeah yeah my other kind of thought slash concern was is that thrones was really clever in the amount of screen time that winter actually gets. For all the talk about winter, we haven't seen much winter because you don't want a show that's in snow and darkness all the time. So if this is about the long night, oh yeah, my, one of my questions is, can you do it in a way visually so that it doesn't feel like we're all getting like seasonal affective disorder as you know over over the course of five seasons you know well because I, I think but see i think i remember talking about this with you way back when thrones was first about to debut because some of the earlier trailers for game of thrones for its first season were kind of leaning so heavily on winterfell stuff and on you know ned stark and, and i mean to me in a way that felt at the time very much kind of conjuring up what i would call the look of lord of the rings not just because of sean bean having a beard but just like that, that very, you know, we're in a sort of gray, grim landscape. And I, I remember you saying even at the time that like th there's stuff that when you get to King's Landing that looks very different from what had been the kind of fantasy look for a very long time. That was, you know, just just sunnier and more colorful. And, you know, then you kind of move to other countries and you saw that. I, that you, you're very right, though, that like there has been such a great mixture of these kind of tones on thrones literally in terms of visually where they've been and yeah that is that's interesting i hadn't really thought about that if it is just like all people in ice being sad that that, that does sort of bring it <laughs> that does sort of bring bring the tone down a little bit then it's amc's uh 
the terror. Oh, oh my god! Oh my god! It's the terror. Your your a miniseries that I loved and Darren did not. Your favorite show. Enjoy. It's not that I didn't love it. It's just that I, I I couldn't get into it. It was a lot of guys with beards and I I, I couldn't tell them all apart. Um, but uh, <laughs> but no, it was it, it was my fault for. And we're two and we're skyping right now as two guys with beards. Frankly, yeah, I I I don't know which is you and which is me right now. Are you are, are you the small <laughs> screen or the uh, big screen? Um, but yeah, I guess I, I mean if nothing else, James, it's weird. Like I guess just there seems to me like very often when they are spinning off a fictional universe, I sort of get the feeling of, Oh, can this universe really sustain this? Like, was there really just one good story here and trying to kind of come up with another one won't really work? I sort of feel like even if, to your point, there isn't necessarily the character basis here that you had with Game of Thrones, the show, there is just so much to Westeros. And if the instinct here is to be like, let's explore even more of it and let's kind of like pencil in some of the margins of the map we haven't seen, that that, that seems pretty exciting to me. Um, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, again, it, it's sort of one of those wait and see things, but the the longer we we get into it the more intrigued i am yeah i mean one of my questions is will they do another one um my suspicion is they will wait until at least they've seen the pilot for the long night before deciding you know and this is a network mind you that's never done a sequel series before this is the first time that they've ever done one um you know, so for HBO, this is kind of like a big, rare move to begin with. Uh, you know, when I first heard about this whole project, I, I remember thinking that I wouldn't mind seeing something that's like American Horror Story or, or, or Fargo, where you do like standalone seasons exploring one story yeah. within that world. And then if one really takes off, then you can always expand that into a series. But uh, but I, I think that'd be really cool. I, yeah, I mean, I, that is such a cool idea. And to me, really speaks to, I mean, one of the things that I like about Martin's later books is that, I mean, at their best, they almost kind of are doing that. Like they're just penciling in these great kind of short stories of like skullduggery and various other great houses. These things that like don't necessarily feel like they always add up to a larger story as much as they're just great little short snippets from Westeros. Um, I like that. I I still kind of want the like walk the earth like Kane and Kung Fu, you know, Brienne of Tarth or, or whoever survives spinoff where it's just sort of like one person going around Westeros could be set afterwards could be set before you know because I, I, I just I love so much the periods in Thrones where you kind of had characters like the Hound and Arya just sort of going across Westeros and seeing all these generally horrifying episode long stories and you know trying to help out not always helping out I, I, I wonder if there's some kind of fugitive version of this which is kind of as small as you're describing with the end not as small but as kind of character focused as you're describing but it's very much more about like let's go multiple places as i'm talking i realize that's actually hugely expensive to have multiple settings in, in a single show so. <laughs> yeah yeah well what's also interesting is all the ideas were prequels which really sets up the idea of there's nothing in development which gives any sense of what happens at the end of game of thrones and what happens in any future it's like wait you know does a total apocalypse happen happen after this and, and there is you know nobody survives and there is nothing left uh you know it really does leave open that possibility by only developing stories that are prequels and not developing anything 
uh, that's set after the show. Oh man, that, see now it's funny. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're right. Like that would be so hardcore if this final season of Thrones ends, uh, like with a beneath the planet of the apes ending, and it's just like everything explodes, and there's just some narrator, let's say Ben Kingsley, who's just like, ah, yes, this this was once a, a world of joy, and now it's all gone. Like I feel like they're not going to go that way. Something tells me it's not going to be a fully nihilistic ending of of, of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Martin's always said bittersweet as 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 his one word tease for the ending but then again we don't know if the show was going to do martin's ending either i mean the the game of thrones showrunners know what martin was planning for his ending but they've also also gone very much off script in a lot of ways and so we don't really know exactly uh or at all you know, how much of this final season is going to be what Martin is going to do in his books or not. Well, uh, speaking of Martin, um, a guy that we both love, uh, somebody you just talked to recently on the occasion of his publishing, Fire and Blood, uh, the first volume of a theoretically two, but for fun, let's say it's going to be five volume history of the Targaryens in Westeros. Um, You had a great interview with him that everyone should go and read right now on EW.com. I had a great time reading Fire and Blood. It's a hoot and a holler. Just a lot of a lot of fun stuff with the Targaryens just running rampant all around Westeros. Real pure epic fantasy stuff uh, that's also just a great sort of history of 150 years of Westeros politics. But James, I wasn't just there for fun. I was there in my capacity as a Game of Thrones podcaster trying to find anything in the book that could theoretically offer some clues about thrones, about what's to come in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, Let me hit you with this, James. What if season finale of Game of Thrones, all our characters who are still surviving are hanging out up in Winterfell, things look pretty dire, and then someone, uh, let's say Gendry, walks in and says, yo guys, uh, I just found these dragon eggs downstairs in the crypt. Crazy, you say? Unlikely, you say? Uh, Yes, probably. But uh, on page 417 of Fire and Blood, there's this great sort of throwaway tease that one of the Targaryen dragons might have left like a litter of eggs at Winterfell when it was there like 200 years ago or so. Um, And, you know, Fire and Blood is very much told as a sort of recorded history book where the writer of the book is sort of from the world of Westeros and he's working from multiple sources and it's kind of meant to be this sort of almost anti-history where you're never really sure what to trust. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I definitely don't think that this will happen in the show. I am fascinated by the possibility that like in, let's say, A Dream of Spring, someone just sort of walks down some wrong corridor in Winterfell and finds like three unhatched dragon eggs. And, you know, should there be anyone of of Targaryen bloodline around, uh, those eggs might hatch. Um, So uh, we'll we'll see about that. what else we got? Yeah, that, that that one does sound really intriguing. Yeah, I mean, if uh, I'm I'm picturing, um, uh, you know, secret Targaryen uh, Tyrion Lannister, you know, <laughs> to, to 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 use another fan theory. That is, uh, you know, you know, finding them and. Uh, 
and uh, starting the cycle anew. That is a big uh, fan theory, uh, which was not was not really addressed in Fire and Blood. It's set a little early to get into the parentage of uh, various people who may or may not be Targaryens, but um, there was a part of the book where we seem to learn where uh, Danny's dragon eggs first came from. Uh, there is a great character in the books named Alyssa Farman, also known as Alice Westhill, another great seafaring person. It's it's fun. It's fun to be a sailor. Is the point of of Martin's later books. It's fun to just sail around Westeros and not get involved in any of the various wars there. Um, she stole some eggs from uh, one of the Targaryens and took it to, I'm forgetting now if it's Essos or Bravos, one of those great countries that we spent some time in, uh, where she sold the eggs to one of the local lords to get some ships. Uh, and apparently, it's kind of strongly implied that those eggs sort of hung out there, were handed from various lord to various lord before arriving in the possession of Caldro and Danny, 250 years hence. So again, the science of dragons only gets more confusing the deeper in you go, that these eggs can just sort of lie there for centuries and ultimately hatch. Um, but on that note, I will say too, James, one of my favorite parts of the book um, we've always kind of heard a lot about Valyria. I think that in Game of Thrones, we went to Valyria in season five, if I recall correctly. It was when Tyrion was sort of on one of his sailboat voyages and he ran into the stone men. Am I, am I right in saying, I think it's season five. Anyhow, there's always been a lot of rumors about, you know, the doom of old Valyria. And it seems to have been this sort right. of the place where the Targaryens came from, this kind of utopia of dragons and incest, which fell victim to some sort of <laughs> horrific, you know, Atlantis, but with fire instead of water, kind of natural disaster. There's this great kind of chapter in Fire and Blood where one of the younger Targaryen princesses, whose name I think think is Aria. I first time I said that name out loud. Um, this this is this is this is bringing me back to uh, um, uh, Dolores Ed. Um, uh, Princess Aria uh, flies to Valyria. Something mysterious happens there, and she comes back with this crazy illness that she almost seems to have these little microscopic snake things inside of her, eating her from mm. the inside. Um, this is all we really hear about Valyria. It's still, it's not clear what happened there. I I'm now intrigued to know if that was another potential prequel idea that Martin had sort of put forward because clearly whatever the hell happened to Valyria is wildly disturbing and is almost kind of, you know, body horror-ish and Cronenberg-y in terms of what happens if you go there again. Um, seems to kind of lead right into it seems to lead into you know some of the things we've seen with the stone man and a lot of the other viruses that have appeared in game of thrones um just lots of good stuff lots of good stuff uh one final note that i want to bring up james while i'm hitting you with some fan theories you'd mentioned earlier the gendry all-encompassing theory of thrones mm -hmm. um there's a prophecy in this book it sort of appears during the chapter about the dance of the dragons which was sort of this epic battle between targaryens that essentially dominates most of fire and blood and there's a point where literally the entire country seems to be on fire and uh there is a prophecy which is basically quote when the hammer shall fall upon the dragon a new king shall rise and none shall stand before him a uh, lot of theories in, in in your Reddit corners that this may relate to Gendry, who does have a pretty cool, uh, you know, hammer that he uses at times as a blacksmith. Um, also, mm. also some theories that it may relate to Robert Baratheon, who had a war hammer. Um, so we'll see. I'm 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 still putting a pin in that Gendry theory because it does seem kind of too good to be true. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, and and right now, I mean, there's still Cersei on the Iron Throne. I mean, everyone seems to count her out, but every time you count her out, she uh, ends up surprising. I mean, we haven't talked much about well, her. And, and, and do you think, James, I mean, just kind of shifting into sort of some, some predictions here, it does seem to me like her idea, her strategy that she put forward at the end of last season, which was essentially, I'm going to let everybody else battle the White Walkers, and then I'm going to just, you know, stroll in and mop up who's left. That does seem like the most sound strategy that anyone has right now. I mean, if, you know, not, not as far as, you know, surviving an apocalyptic, you know, environmental event. I mean, theoretically, she should be helping them. But if we think that they can defeat the White Walkers, then yes, she absolutely is correct in not sending her army up there. I, I, I do wonder if if that is the kind of bittersweet thing that Martin is talking about, that the heroes who do save the world are then immediately killed by some other malicious, some totally malicious person on the Iron Throne who was not helping them in their battle to save humanity. <laughs> yeah, 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 she's sort of like using the Red Keep as her own personal panic room, <laughs> I, I think, at this point. You know, it's never been entirely clear to me you know what is the extent of winter like does winter completely encompass uh you know you know king's landing uh you know does it you know there's been uh you Euron sort of made a comment about fleeing on a ship uh to to escape um you know can you do that or or does it freeze you know you know the, the oceans as well i mean how far does it go that's a good question I, I, I do think that, like, on, on some level, we are meant to think that, like, this winter will be so much crazier. You know, there, there's all that talk in the early going about how they've had such a great long summer and really all these kids were raised in a... I mean, it is just so comical. I say these kids, they're now all the adults and reigning people on the show, but they were all kind of raised as summer children, which means that, like, a long summer leads to a long winter. It is... I, I, I do like the idea that, like, you have these characters who are just like, I'm leaving Westeros for a few years. Like, you you guys handle this and then yeah like it turns out that i mean the night king who clearly has a lot of powers that we still don't entirely understand he just starts building a like ice bridge over to the free cities and everything <laughs> that seems entirely possible okay so here's a question yeah. um last season you had some predictions for the final season yes uh who do you think is going to end up on the Iron Throne, if anyone. Oh, that's a good question. Um, well. I'm totally putting you on the spot, I know. Okay. You're putting me on the spot, and it's good that you're doing it because I haven't thought about this very much because I was going to sort of dig deeper into the like next-level game theory of the final season. But it's weird. The more we talk about it as a joke the more that I do think there is some potential veracity to the Gendry idea. Um, just because it seems to me like every other character who's left who would theoretically sit on the Iron Throne, th there's either some element that makes me think that they will not want to or that they will ultimately not be able to for one reason or another i mean th there's so much like nobility in someone like Jon snow there's such a feeling of kind of fate and destiny in someone like danny um you know the fact that cersei has already been on there for a little while and things have gone generally not so hot like i do think that as you kind of read more and more of martin's westeros writing there's kind of the feeling that like you know your first hundred days on the throne can be very decisive, and there are these there are these people who kind of sit there briefly, and they immediately start bleeding from all the points on the throne, and that kind of seems like Cersei's deal to me. 
But I don't know. Gendry on the Iron Throne just seems so unlikely. So I guess I'm going to have to say uh, Sansa. I think I think somehow like that would make the most amount of inevitability slash surprise sense to me just on a narrative level and on a like storytelling level. I just feel like we've seen so much of her the last couple seasons as someone who is adept at um, maybe like managing the political side of, of power in a way that her father and really in a way that no one else in her family ever has been. I mean, you kind of have Arya now as the reigning exemplar of what you might call like really old school Winterfellian vengeance. I mean, literally like all she does all day is think about how she's going to even the score. And Sansa to me just seems like someone who does have that sort of extra level of, I learned from the worst. I've seen the worst. I've been married to the worst and and, and betrothed to the worst and came through it, you know, so much stronger and better. So I I guess I'm rooting for her. And I guess I think it might be her, Um, which probably means, which which probably means that, that she dies in the first, episode <laughs> okay i'm i'm locking your prediction and and keeping my my poker face on Skype. i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure oh god just like i because I, I was trying to remember like who's who's the like who's the last remaining like cousin of a cousin that we've met who's who's actually going to end up on on the throne i mean like i would love it if it ends with um with Varys just finding some like you know shirt tail cousin of, of of the baratheons just being like, okay you're you're the king now everyone else is dead on on the field of battle <laughs> um well let's see uh before we go uh what else what what else should we talk about um have you seen buster scruggs yet i have not seen buster scruggs yet uh i'm very (sighs) excited to begin i know this this isn't because you say these things and i like throw them out it's because you say these things i'm okay like if it's that good i need to really focus on what i'm going to watch here this has the james hibbard stamp of approval on it i am going to watch it this weekend it's been sort of there on my uh, netflix queue right beyond all the screeners for uh for, for january is, is is that your movie of the year is that, is that your like 2018 movie it's definitely one of my top five movies of the year uh-huh. i'm not a huge coen brothers fan and it's definitely not a movie for everyone but it's like it's you know it's like sometimes when you just you know end up picking up an album that you you hadn't really thought about or heard of and you play it and it's just the exactly the right album for you at that moment oh, that you I didn't even it. know you wanted. Awesome. And that was sort of how I felt over uh, the Thanksgiving break. You know, I was kind of down and I was like, oh, what is this? And I'm just going to start it and maybe stop it in five minutes. And I ended up watching it twice that week. And uh, just incredible. Uh, I, I thought it was, you know, to me, it's like. Big Lebowski, Fargo, and the uh, Mix, which okay. I realize is higher than okay. Holy fuck! Almost all people, well, you know, rank it. Well, but, uh, all right. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm uh, that is great. To, it's, it's funny because you and my brother, two of the most trusted people when it comes to cultural tastes, for me at least, both within the span of two days, was just like Buster Scruggs, a must see. Um, okay, need to watch that, and I, I'm glad to hear that. I'll be honest, I, I'm such a Coen Brothers like fanboy that I, I mean, I've I, I've probably watched Hail Caesar four times by now. So like, I, this this sounds like. <laughs> It's, it's going to be right up my alley. Um, yeah. That's great. I need to watch. We we just saw Roma, Cat uh, and I did. Oh, how was it? It was great. We saw it on the big screen. It was beautiful. It was incredible. Totally worth watching. I, mean, I think it's on Netflix streaming everywhere now. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard that's one of those few movies of the year that you must see on the big screen. I mean, I'd, I'd recommend that just because it is beautiful to look at. But, I mean, you know, beautiful in a way that's kind of like, you know, this is a lot of scenes of 
seemingly not much happening, but certainly on the big screen, you just sort of experience the like full depth that Quaron is working with. And, you know, every single shot seems to have 10 more things going on in it than any other shot you've seen in, in any movie that week. Um, that was pretty good. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else movie-wise. Oh, and then, um, uh, well, we watched, <laughs> have you seen First Reformed yet? <laughs> no. It's really good. Let me tell you, James, wait, wait till you're in like an okay mood before you watch it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was It was definitely sort of a like, whoo, okay, need to sort of rethink the, the, the state of the world and my, and my place in it now kind of mood. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Did, did you see Free Solo by chance? Oh, Speaking of movies, no, to see no, on the big screen. No, it's, it's still playing. I've heard it's awesome. That's the one about the mountain climbing. You have right? to see it. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, yeah. That's one about uh, uh, Alex uh, Honnold. Is that how you pronounce yeah, his yeah. name? The, and, uh, uh, the, and, the, and, the rock climber. And him climbing and, uh, Half Dome, right? Or him climbing uh, Yosemite? El Capitan. Uh, El Capitan, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. He, cli- he's, he sets out to climb El Cap without a rope. And, you know, I was thinking the other day that that movie, watching that movie in a theater with somebody is like administering to somebody a sociopath test because if when he's climbing el cap you reach over and take that person's hand if their palms are not sweaty they're a sociopath because 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 there is no way to watch that without like feeling that sort of sympathetic you know empathetic uh you know emotional response of that you know, dizzy queasiness I, I uh, can't imagine. being on that cliff without a rope. I was reading an article about him and I was getting dizzy and like nauseous just from like reading about like, you know, when he's in like hour two of this free climb, like just like, why are you so crazy? Why, why do you want to die, man? This is not a, like, this is not a healthy pursuit, but I guess I'm glad they made a movie out of it at least. <laughs> um, okay. okay. Buster's cool. Well, it's, I, it's happening this week. Yeah. That's moving to the, I, I was going to, uh, this that's that's been on the list of the like you know movies to see before the end of the year and then now it's moving to the top <laughs> um let's see i guess one thing more thing i'd, I'd add before we go um is one more thing i'd throw in is if you're looking to get an entertainment fan a gift for the holiday season uh consider a subscription to ew uh you know they fund these trips we take to sets to do reporting and we have this big team that works really hard to bring original reporting to online. Um, you know, so often it's like we'll 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 work on something for months and post it, and then like 20 other sites will just grab it and put it on, on their sites. So if you, but we wouldn't have that uh, at all if if it wasn't for EW backing it. So if you like original reporting and set visits and first look photos and recommendations of what to watch in an era of. 500 TV shows. Uh, it's like 20 bucks a year, which is less than two bucks a month. So just go to ew.com slash subscribe, or you can get a subscription on amazon.com or many other places online. Um, as for Game of Thrones Weekly, um, let's lay out our sort of future plans here. We're going to have at least a couple more preview episodes, but probably not another one until March uh, when we're closer to premiere, and hopefully we'll have a trailer then. And then we'll have our episodes every week uh, per usual after each new episode and then like maybe one or two after the finale as well. And, uh, you know, just as a word, everybody out there, we'll do our best to get our weekly podcast episodes up as quickly as possible. Obviously, we assume that the second every episode of this season ends, there's going to be a lot to talk about. Uh, We will endeavor to do our best to turn around the show as quickly as possible. But uh, just whenever you want to start tweeting at us, tweet at him. He's at James Hibbard. Tweet at me. I'm at Darren Franich. He knows stuff he can't tell you. I still barely know anything about what's happened before this. So we make a good team. Um, But uh, I I have gotten a 
preview of what James is working on in his Game of Thrones coverage, and I'm amped about that. Um, so I, I hope everybody is uh, getting stoked about this final season, stoked about all the great stuff that EW has uh, coming down the way related to uh, all things Game of Thrones. Yeah, and we will we will not uh, have any lack of things to talk about after each episode this season that I can guarantee um, yeah there's you know uh, shit goes down yeah shit goes down and then at the very end and at the very end Lady Stoneheart sits on the Iron Throne shh I told you not to tell anybody that I told you that god damn it that's right in the podcast man I'm getting so much trouble 